Drabble Classics, a weekly podcast featuring archived episodes of the Drabblecast drawn from the vault and injected with reanimation serum for your listening pleasure. Edited by Charity Hilton. Enjoy. I think on some level I knew this was going to happen. When I asked you all for suggestions for stories to play on Drabble Classics, I must have known that at some point in time it would come down to this. I just didn't think it would happen so soon. But it is here. You all suggested the stories that you want to fight head-to-head in the next round of voting for Drabble Classics, and here they are. First, The Worm Within by Vincent Eaton, and second, Code Brown by Dermot Glennon. What does this say about you, the Drabblecast fans? You all bypass the stories by great writers like Isaac Asimov and Will McIntosh and Philip K. Dick and even freaking Saki. Because, you made this very clear, you wanted me to get straight to the stories that take place in the human intestines. You're probably wondering why it's taken me this long to get there already. It's only fair, there is a whole universe inside of us, and someone needs to tell those stories. And that's what made the Drabblecast great, isn't it? You can now go on the forums and vote for which story you want to appear next. And my friends and I will give it the same level of thoughtful discussion and analysis that I know you have come to expect from us. Also, you can suggest things for me to say randomly at the end of the conversation, and I will do it. Listen to the end today, and you'll see what I mean. In the meantime, I am Charity Hilton, and we are listening to Drabblecast 129 by Tim Pratt, Annabelle's Alphabet. To be serious for a moment... This is a really great episode, one of my all-time favorites, and I am very excited to share it with you. So enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 129. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Just got back from Dragon Con in Atlanta. About five hours of total sleep, 14 hours of total driving back with a hangover, and now I'm gonna read you some stories. Cause I love you, man. You're, you totally deserve it. Right? You're, you're always there for me. I'm sorry I threw up on your autographed photo of Patrick Stewart, dude. I'm sorry that I lost your car and in, in that estuary. And, and dude, I'm sorry I hit on your brother. I totally thought he was your sister. I mean, they have the same colored hair. But I'm, I'm also sorry that I tried to hit on someone that that. That thought was your sister, even if it was just a genetically related doppelganger. Dude, I I can't blame it on the booze. I should have known better. And your brother should get a haircut. And we should just forget about the whole weekend. Just listen to a hundred word story, dude. This week's Drabble is called Telltale Signs and comes to us from Ralph Camelli. 
Ralph's one of our favorites. He's been published in Weird Tales, McSweeney's, The Morning News, The Big Jewel, and oft on the Drabblecast, with stories like Sheltered from Two Trifectas Ago and My Mustache, A Love Story from More Trifectas Ago. The hitchhiker I killed had a bushy mustache. Now, every morning, I wake up wearing that identical mustache, fully formed, announcing to all the world my crime. I hoped I was imagining it, but my buddy Carl confirmed it was real. I tried shaving it, yet it always returns, thick and full, the next morning. I don't care. I won't let it beat me. I'm worried about Carl, though. The magic mustache has made him curious, suspicious. He's much better looking than I am, with piercing eyes, thin nose, and square jaw. I wonder which feature I'll wake up with tomorrow. feature story this week comes from Tim Pratt, and it's called Annabelle's Alphabet. Tim's one of my personal favorite writers, and his work has appeared in the best of American short stories, the year's best fantasy, and other nice places. His short fiction has won a Hugo Award, and almost won a Nebula and Fantasy Award. He's currently publishing an online serial urban fantasy novella, Bone Shop, which you can find at marlamason.net forward slash bone shop. We'll have that in our show notes. I've just started it a few weeks ago, and I'm thoroughly digging. So, without further ado, Annabelle's Alphabet by Tim Pratt. for Annabelle, who turned ten today. She is on a birthday picnic with her parents, wearing what her mother calls her Alice in Wonderland dress, and the warm air smells of summer. Annabelle hears chimes in the wind, but her parents, arguing on a blanket, don't seem to notice. Annabelle might follow the music later, through the yellow and blue field of wildflowers into the woods. The chimes seem to call her name, three syllables, Annabelle. She laughs and claps her hands. Her parents murmur. B is for butterflies. Annabelle sees one now. Yellow wings fluttering through the long grass over the hills. She chases it until it lands, then leans over to watch it resting on a blossom. Annabelle thinks it might be looking at her, but she isn't sure if butterflies have eyes. Her father collects butterflies, pins them down, and seals them under glass. She's seen him in the garage, where he keeps his collection, looking at them. Sometimes, when he doesn't know she's there... He rips off their wings, 
and that frightens her. Annabelle shivers and waves her hand at the butterfly. Go on, she whispers. Fly away. It does. C is for cages. Once at another girl's birthday party, Annabelle saw parakeets, yellow and blue, singing in a cage. She looked at them for a minute and decided to set them free. She tugged at the cage door, but a broad, soft woman in a flowered dress stopped her. No, dear, she said. Don't let them out. I want them to fly, Annabelle said, her eyes suddenly hot and full of tears. No, the woman repeated, leading Annabelle back to cake and ice cream. Their wings are clipped. They couldn't fly anyway. Do their wings ever grow back? Annabelle asked. But the woman didn't answer. D is for dreams, of course. Annabelle dreams of green places, and she often dreams of flying, soaring over woods and water, singing as she goes. One morning, when she was five years old, she said, I flied, Mommy. Last night I flied. Her mother's eyes went wide and she made a squeaking noise, as if choking on her eggs. In her dreams, her father said sharply, looking up from his paper. She means in her dreams. Everyone has that dream. Annabelle's mother nodded and looked down at her plate. Annabelle remembers that, even five years later. She has a very good memory, but far enough back it turns to mist and shadows and pine trees. E is for earthworms. Annabelle's father is a weekend fisherman, and there's a patch of black dirt behind the house where he digs for worms. Once, young and dirty need, Annabelle watched him dig. Caddy pillars, she said when he pulled up a long worm, wiggling and dropped it in the bucket. Not caterpillars, her father said. Worms. Worms? Annabelle said, scrunching up her face. Yes. Caterpillars are fuzzy, and they turn into butterflies. Worms are slimy, and they don't turn into anything. But he raised his finger in front of Annabelle's wide, gold-flecked eyes. If you cut a worm in half, both halves go on living. He took out his pocket knife, laid a worm on a shattered piece of cinder block, and sliced it neatly in half. There was no blood, and both halves wriggled wildly. See? Annabelle looked for a moment, solemn, and then said, Put it back together, Daddy. He frowned, picking up the two wiggling half-worms and dropping them in his bucket. I can't, Annabelle. There's no way to put them together again. Oh, she said in a quiet voice, but she wondered... is for fairies. Annabelle's mother is religious, and there are pictures and statues of angels all over the house, with their white wings and pale, pretty faces. When Annabelle was younger, she called them fairies. No, her mother said sternly. They're angels. But they got wings, Annabelle said. 
Her mother embraced her in freckled arms. I know, darling, but they're angels, I promise, and you're my little angel. I don't got wings, Annabelle said scornfully. G is for garden. Annabelle's mother has one, with roses and posies and tulips and other blossoms, and in the summer they buzz with bees. Once Annabelle was sent to pull weeds, but instead she took up flowers and wove them into her red hair and made chains for her wrists. Her mother squawked and shouted when she saw, but Annabelle was serene, sitting on the lawn with her skirts spread around her. She was a flower. H is for hair, sunset red on Annabelle's head. Her father's hair is sandy blonde and short. Her mother's is flat brown and cut in a bob. Annabelle's hair falls in curly waves nearly to her knees. It has never been cut. When Annabelle's mother brushes her daughter's hair, as she does every morning, it never snags or tangles. Her mother tells herself it must be the shampoo she uses, but it certainly doesn't do that for her own hair. She chooses not to think about it. Annabelle's mother chooses not to think about a great many things. I is for innocence, and today, as every day, Annabelle is drifting farther from that state. Her father watches her sometimes as she plays, frowning, and sometimes he grins like a jack-o'-lantern, but he's never laid a hand on her, even to punish Sometimes he seems nervous when he hugs her, and he never touches her back for long. Annabelle's innocence is still complete, but today she turned ten, and as she grows through double digits, that innocence will disappear. For some things, some reconnections, time is growing short. Jay is for joy, and that's what Annabelle was for her parents, or was meant to be. Or could have been. She's a gift from God, Annabelle's mother said when they got their newfound daughter home. But she was hesitant, trembling. She put her hands across her belly. From the kitchen, she heard a rasp, and her young husband said, She is a gift. There's just something to take care of first. Another rasp, metal on stone, and Annabelle's mother closed her eyes. Get it sharp, she said. Very sharp, so it doesn't hurt much. I'll boil some water. Somewhere in the house, far from the green places she'd known, baby Annabelle lay on her stomach and cried. K is for knives. Annabelle has dim memories masquerading as nightmares. Even at ten years old, her father has to cut her food. She can't stand to touch a knife. She doesn't like meat, anyway, because it reminds her too much of her own muscles moving under the skin. She has muscles in her back that she can flex, but they don't move anything at all. She stares at the wall as her father saws away at the food on her plate. She can't stand to look at the knife, or at him wielding it. 
L is for lost things. Annabelle loses things a lot, but her father almost never does. He's only once lost anything that she can remember. Listening from the top of the stairs, Annabelle heard him shout at her mother, They're gone. They were wrapped in cloth and locked in the chest, and now they're gone. What did you do with them? And her mother, Nothing. I hated them the way you brooded over them. But I wouldn't touch the things. Well, then where did they go? Her mother, quietly, Maybe they flew away. M is for music and for mystery, and this is both. Those chimes ringing over the hills from the trees. They aren't birdsong, and they aren't bells, and Annabelle's parents, just a few feet away on the blanket, don't hear a thing. It is Annabelle's birthday, and she got a pink bike with a basket and a new kite to fly. The kite is in the grass, forgotten, and her bike is back at home. Annabelle wonders if she'll be getting another gift. N is for normal, and some things aren't, and those things need to be cut right out. Annabelle's father knows that, and so does her mother, though it hurts her more. Annabelle doesn't think about it. Normal is what things are, and only things that aren't what they are can be wrong. O is for outside, and that's Annabelle's earliest memory of being outside, tiny in the forest, looking up at stars and pine trees. Lost, like the baby in the rhyme that came tumbling down when the bough broke and the cradle fell. Then came voices and two tall people scooping her from the forest floor, exclaiming, turning her over. Annabelle doesn't know what the memory means, but her mother sings lullabies, and that's one of the voices, and her father tells stories in measured tones, and that's the other. Sometimes Annabelle sneaks out of the house and lies down in her backyard and looks up at the sky through the pines. P is for picnic, and what a wonderful idea that was. Annabelle would love a birthday picnic, her mother said, and it's such a pretty day, but where should we go? There's a field I know, by a nice stretch of woods, her father said thoughtfully. They packed the car and took Annabelle and her new kite to the field. Neither of her parents seemed to remember this place, though they'd often taken walks in the woods here when they were younger. A strange cloud covers their memories, filling their heads. They'd last seen this field on a summer night, like this one, exactly ten years before. They'd come to watch the butterflies. This was before he started dipping the butterflies, wings and all, in chloroform. Before he locked them under glass. Before, but only just before, a matter of minutes perhaps, they found Annabelle. Q is for quiet, and Annabelle is that. Even the soughing of the wind has stopped, and her parents are murmuring, sipping lemonade. She can still hear the chimes if she holds her breath, but they're fading. Even the beating of her heart is enough to make her miss notes. 
Annabelle. Yes, the chimes are fading, and if she intends to follow them, she must do so soon. R is for ripping. When the knife went dull, when things weren't quite severed and man hands pulled and blood welled up, R is for the rasp of the knife on the whetstone. But some things are too attached to be cut neatly, no matter how sharp the blade, and they tear. S is for scars. Annabelle has two on her back, shiny and wide, running vertically down her shoulder blades. Her mother told her that she stumbled and fell on a board with nails on it, and that's where the scars came from. Her father told her that she was scratched by a dog when she was a baby, and that's where she got them. Sometimes her muscles spasm beneath the scars, and often in the morning, after a dream of flying, her shoulders ache. T is for time, and Annabelle feels it shortening and shortening as the shadows lengthen and the sun slides west. U is for umbilicus, the first connection between mother and daughter, which leaves its mark on the child's belly forever. But Annabelle has no navel. Her stomach is as smooth as the skin of a peach, unmarked and untouched. Annabelle's mother thinks sometimes of umbilical cords being cut with scissors, of that fundamental severance, which she and Annabelle never had. Instead of scissors, there was a knife, and it wasn't a cord that was cut, not the connection between mother and daughter that was severed, but a different connection altogether. And now Annabelle is in the field on her birthday, and it seems that while some connections must remain sundered forever, others can be rejoined. V is for vigilant, and Annabelle's mother is that. She always keeps an eye out for her daughter. She can't have more children. That thought is always on top of her mind, and she rarely lets Annabelle out of her sight. But now her attention wanders. She even forgets Annabelle for a moment. The thoughts fly out of her head, and she's back in her girlhood, laughing with her new husband, laughing before Annabelle and knives and grisly, silky mementos that mysteriously disappear, just as Annabelle is now disappearing over the hills toward the forest. W is for worried, and Annabelle knows her parents will be. But the chiming is louder now. A part of her is calling her, and that's more important than anything. And she runs across the fields into the trees, the song in her head like her own voice, her own song, calling her home. And as she runs, she can almost feel herself flying. X is for xenophobia, the hate of the stranger. And Annabelle doesn't know that word, and neither does her mother. And while her father does know it, he would never ascribe it to himself. Yet his daughter is a stranger, and his wife also in many ways, and himself most of all. And he hates them all, really. When he sits in the basement, tearing the wings from butterflies and remembering the night they found Annabelle, hate fills him. You can't turn something into something it's not. He thinks at the picnic. Looking at the fat clouds float effortlessly by, flying. And then his wife says, "Where's Annabelle?" 
and things happen very fast. Why is for yell, which Annabelle's mother does. She stands on the blanket and shouts her daughter's name. Her husband stands, frowning, hands clenched on a napkin that he rips in half, and they both shout for their daughter, who is gone. And they look for the flutter of a blue dress, for curly red hair. But there's nothing, not even in the trees. There's only... Z is for Zephyr, the gentle west wind coming up suddenly strong over the field from the trees, blowing into the shouting faces of Annabelle's mother and father. But only the wind answers them, blowing as though buffeted by a million wings. And then, like apple blossoms blowing free, like silk streamers in the air, a hundred thousand sunset red and golden butterflies burst from the trees in the forest, flying. And after it all, Annabelle knows that she is not a worm, or an angel, or a flower. She is something else, something of the green, something like a butterfly that lost its wings, but after a time, regained them. Twist ending. I really thought she was going to turn out to be a worm. I'm pretty sure this story was either about the loss of innocence and coming of age, or it was about male circumcision. You've got some nice opening flower analogies to support the first point, but you've also got some blatant worm dicing to support the second point. I can't, Annabelle. There's no way to put them together again. Ah, the coming of age. You know, we used to have to hunt big, badass animals in order to get there. Now we just kind of awkwardly fumble through it with acne and a bad attitude. Let's do some story feedback. We ran a story four weeks ago called Ghosts and Simulations by Ruthanna Emrys, a story about a man working for a company that uploads the consciousnesses of the deceased into computer programs, effectively making them immortal and socially awkward. This story got resounding woots. The Brog said, Very easily my favorite Drabblecast. Very beautifully written, and the concept is just haunting. Pardon the pun. And Savoy liked it too, saying, I really liked this too. I felt it was pretty certain that by the end the protagonist was leaning toward disagreeing with the practice, and I felt that the author did a good job of illustrating that whether or not the simulations were a good thing wasn't a black or white issue for the protagonist, since things like that seldom are in real life. Abby Hilton made a critique, saying, I realize that the point was a speculation on the nature of existence, but I couldn't help feeling that the interactive possibilities for the ghosts were unimaginative. They seemed to be living in an early version of the internet, with nothing but chat rooms. Won't they be likely to jump into Second Life, or its futuristic equivalent, play World of Warcraft all day long, listen to a lot of podcasts, troll message boards, do digital art, forget giving live lectures, how about recording them and posting them on their websites? Can they not email? Why do families have to come to the facility at all? If the ghosts were actually cut off from the internet because live people felt threatened, I would have liked to hear about that debate. Whoa. 
A lot of good points. Actually, that last one would be a really cool story. I wonder if we can get Ruthanna to write a sequel. The next week, we brought you Christmas in August with Little Brother TM by Bruce Holland Rogers, a story about a kid who gets a robot younger brother under his tree. Listeners also responded well to this story, like Devorah, who said, I've listened to this puppy about five times, and it gets creepier and creepier while being consistently hilarious. Fantastic production. The music greatly enhances the story. All those sweet sugar plums dancing while Mommy turns off her kid. Great contrast. How kind of Norm to give us Christmas in August. Yep, I'm too good to you people. Jonathan C.G., who I got to hang out with over DragonCon this week with his lovely wife and mom, said, Love this little tale. The hook at the end does that rare thing in science fiction, a twist that isn't obnoxious. The story would stand on its own merit without it, so this was just icing on the cake. Finally, newcomer to the forums, J. Ronald Lee liked it, but had some suggestions, saying, And there's a spoiler here, kids, so cover your ears for like ten seconds. Enjoyable, but fairly light. I felt the hook could have been set better. I would have liked to have felt a little more apprehension when Mother began feeling for the button. There you go. Join our forums, say hello, comment on stories, vote for unholy weapon-enhanced political figure abominations doing combat with their various genetic modifications. Really, we have visuals, actually. All off of our discussion forums, which you can find off our main page at drabblecast.org. Write a hundred character not counting spaces twitfix story and post it up in our weekly contest thread. The ring is currently dominated by a few key heavyweights right now. See if you've got what it takes to kick him off the hill. Like, Fiverr was able to do again this week, with a really fantastic little two-sentence Lovecraft parody story. Tis twat, follow us on Twitter for the goods. You know what would really rock, and only take a few minutes? If you wrote us a quick review on iTunes, or wherever you pick up our feed, so we can grab more attention and snag more new listeners. Oh, <laughs> don't worry. You'll still be our favorite listeners forever, ever. But we think it might be time to see some other people also, if you're into that. Hey, times are tough out there, but they've been tougher. Statistics show that while all other businesses failed, people actually gave more to short fiction podcasts during the Great Depression than any other time between 1900 and 1950. I didn't make that up. It's the dad burn truth. So really, there's no reason at all not to go to our website right now, Drabblecast.org, and push the big five bucks a month button to give us money for something you otherwise could get just as easily for free. Ah, oh, crap. Well, okay, there's that one reason not to do it, I guess, but... Dang it, I suck at this. Just do it anyways. You don't have to, but if nobody did, then we'd be voila. And if you do... And enough people do. I promise you that you will hear great and wondrous things happen on this show when we can afford them. And that leads right into our kick-ass donor of the week. Fred Greenhall. Fred found us through the Drabblecast forums moderator and spooky story contributor Kevin Anderson. He's an audio writer and producer who lives in an off-grid, yurt-inspired octagon deep in the woods of Alfred, Maine. He writes and produces his own audio drama for Final Rune Productions at finalrune.com. And if you don't know what an audio drama is, then check out his weekly podcast, Radio Drama Revival, at radiodramarevival.com, where he features the best in contemporary audio drama from around the world. 
Fred also writes fiction and hopes he can write a story one day weird enough to make it on the Drabblecast. Don't worry, Fred. Keep on trying. Heck, if Kevin Anderson can do it, then anyone can, huh? (laughs) I mean, literally, anyone. Even a Norwegian halibut fisherman missing his entire frontal lobe could probably do it. (laughs) I mean, even the semi-conscious conjoined fetus hanging limply from the neck of an Eskimo walrus wrangler could probably do it. (laughs) I mean, even Michael Jackson's moonwalking, reanimated cor... What? What? Why is that offensive? What, you don't think... You think we'd reject him? What, you're the insensitive bastard. Oh, screw you if you don't think he could write good speculative fiction as a zombie. <laughs> Just playing, Kevin. We love you. And we love you too, Fred. I haven't had a chance to check out Radio Drama Revival yet, but I did wallow around in Final Rune Productions for a while, and must give it a wholehearted eight tentacles up. It's good stuff. Check them out. Again, that's finalrune.com. And we'll have it in our show notes. So, that's our show. The Drabblecast is produced under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change it or sell it without asking, but feel free to share it with all your friends before murdering them to acquire their remarkable facial hair. Special thanks to Jonathan Van Gilder for this week's art. He's got some really amazing photography that you should definitely check out at jvgphoto.com, especially if you need headshots or portraits, some of the best work I've ever seen. Our staff is made up of co-editors, Luke, I'm a cocky yet sincerely self-conscious bastard when I'm drunk, Coddington, and Kendall, uh, why'd I have to get married a few months ago? I should have waited until after Dragon Con, Marchman. And yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that caterpillars are fuzzy and they turn into butterflies. Worms are slimy, but both halves go on living. Noise filled the room like the smoke And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass Words were all slurred when spoke Yes, words were all slurred when spoke Welcome back. We just listened to Annabelle's Alphabet by Tim Pratt And I am here with my friends Jimmy Rogers And for the first time joining us, Teresa Telesco And we're going to talk a little bit about what we thought of the story And I have to say, I remember I reached a point in time when I was listening to the Drabblecast where I noticed the strong connection between stories being by Tim Pratt and me liking those stories an extra, extra lot. So that was uh, what actually got me started as I went through the archives looking for all of the Tim Pratt stories. And when I hit this story, I liked it enough that I thought there must be other golden things in here too that that are not by Tim Pratt. And the next thing I knew, two months of my life had passed and I had listened to the entire archives. What was your first reaction? Teresa, let's hear from you first. Oh, so you want to put me on the spot first. (laughs) Absolutely. I liked it. Uh, There wasn't really a typical twist to the story. It was pretty early on. You could kind of see where it was going. The fact that Annabelle wasn't human and that there was something that they were concerned about her leaving for some reason. So it wasn't really a twist that was like, oh, I didn't see this coming. But it was still interesting, the way that he set it up, going through the entire alphabet. When I first he first started doing that, I kind of went, oh, Lord, we're going to go through the entire 26 letters of this alphabet. But the way he did it, it, it wasn't agonizing or laborious. It was actually telling a story, and I thought he told it pretty well. So, I, I you know, I, I, 
I, I know I'm gonna I'm gonna break Charity's heart because this is her favorite all time story ever. I'm pretty sure, just in the universe. And <laughs> I have to say, I didn't, I didn't. This one didn't really get me. The alphabet part again. I, I was also like afraid that it wouldn't be a great style because I've heard other alphabet stories and alphabet poems, and it's kind of a thing that has been done. And I thought it, I, I thought it was not distracting. I didn't think it was forced or anything like that. I will say, I don't feel, also don't feel like it added very much for me. That's possibly because the story didn't have enough of an arc for me. I, I've had a hard time because it was clear by about. It's interesting we have time codes for this thing. It's by about maybe G or something. I had a pretty good understanding of what the girl was, what the situation was, the event that had happened in her birth. And I feel like the story kind of ended there for me. I mean, and then she predictably went back to the fairies. So I was just like not... I, I kind of was like, oh, what am I supposed to do now? Like, I know the thing. Like, if, if it was unclear throughout, then I would have been more surprised at the end. Or if it was... I don't know, I didn't connect deeply with the mother at all, really. And sort of with the father... I don't know. That's kind of where I ended up. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure we're supposed to connect with the father. I don't think he ever did anything likable at any point in the story. Except he might actually be the most, I, I almost want to say human or the the most identifiable because he, his, when you first talk about, when they talk about the fact that he was ripping the wings off butterflies and, you know, there's a bit of horror in that to go, oh, why would you do that? That's, yeah, that's, yeah. Ew! <laughs> and but then as the story progressed, I, I agree with you, Jimmy. I by by about that time too, about that point, you were like, okay, she's a fairy, and they did something to keep her. But it was kind of nice to get the little cues all going through the story to go, oh yeah, okay, I was right about that, and to get the little reinforcements. But as it went on, you got more of his viewpoint, I think, than from anybody, either Annabelle or her mother. That for some reason he took. Annabelle is his daughter, and there was something that was very abhorrent to him about her. I it almost feel that he was releasing that disgust the only way he could without lashing out against her, which was tearing the wings off the butterflies. But that there was still something he just he, he just didn't like about her, the fact that she was this other. Yeah, I mean, I think Annabelle was definitely the vessel in this story rather than a character. She was a representation of this guy's, I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily agree that this was, she was a great representation, but I think that was the, it was what was attempted was that she was a representation of, of the xenophobic and the, and the other, and that she was, they were trying to make her into something that she wasn't. So really, yeah, I think the father is the kind of the main character, if not the focal point. And I, I guess, it, I, I don't know, like, he came into it so late as a character. And I mean, I think it was interesting that he started out as like, oh, he's like a psychopath in the beginning. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, it's relevant to the story. It's not that he's just ripping apart animals. <laughs> like, I, I, I didn't, I, I, th I thought that was clever. Um, that, that, that false trail that, you know, down the garden path kind of a thing. But at the same time, uh, yeah, it's just, it didn't, it didn't get me. I don't know. Maybe the imagery is, one of the reasons that Drabblecast listeners find this so appealing, and and the um, and the, maybe the imagery just didn't speak to me personally. But I want to hear from Charity because this is obviously like the most stupendous story ever, and I, <laughs> I want to know what is so stupendous about it. Well, I 
I think that this is a story for me that really needed to be done in an audio production. I, I have not read it in text form, but I can't imagine that it would have been nearly as powerful. And for me, this was a perfect merging of a story that was going to have so much mood and atmosphere added to it by the sound effects, by the voices, by the the good narration techniques. And in this case, I think it really worked. You know, I, I think it's very creepy, the sharpening knives, the Chopin in the background. You can even almost see this as like a painting where you've got this girl and her family picnicking in the woods with, with the chimes uh, in the background and, and the girl looking off in the distance at the fairies that she w- wants to join. So to me, that just, it was just meant to be an audio production. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I don't think it would have had the same kind of resonating quality without the audio or that it would have even caused somebody necessarily to think if you just read it and <laughs> right. be like, oh, okay, that was, that was nice and kind of move on. I do, I was wondering as I was listening to it though, if it was Norm or if it was the author who decided what the tones of the chime would be. Right. Cause right. yeah, that. And yeah, it's very well, wasn't necessarily Norm's range, but <laughs> I was, I, I, I did wonder who who decided what what the the chimes, what notes those exactly would be, because you do want to hit the right. If it's trying to be the fairies calling for Annabelle to come home, you do want to hit the right notes. Right. Um. Absolutely. I, that did not even cross my mind. <laughs> Totally on a different wavelength. Well, I, I, I was curious, Jimmy, to get your reaction, actually, because you've told me many, many times that you do not enjoy it when stories are told not in chronological fashion. And you're somebody who listens to tons of stories and watches, you know, the normal amount of movies and TV, which is a lot in this day and age. So you've consumed a lot, and and you personally don't like that, right? Yeah, I mean, this didn't feel like a super non-chronological story. I mean, there's... There's kind of references to the past, and then there's a there's like kind of a, a flashback, but it, it wasn't a jarring flashback because it's a story about her childhood. It almost is in itself a historical story. It's not like, and now this is happening, now this is happening. That really only happens at the very end, but it's so much like, I mean, for me, this is almost like two vignettes with some spacing in between and that's kind of the I I, I I i just it was just weird for me i don't i don't know <laughs> i will say the actually in the writing of it on paper i can see how the alphabet may have played a bigger role mm-hmm. so i can see how like it may have been lost from because you know when you have the like a is for apple b is for bear kind of thing or m is for murder or whatever clever <laughs> thing the author's coming up with you would see that breaking up the paragraphs and I think that visual would be more appealing because you're normally used to just seeing endless paragraphs. So maybe, I don't know. It was, it was interesting, but I, I think it was, I think it was brought to audio really well. I think the, the music and the chimes and the wind, and there was some other little sound effects in there that were, that were as usual. That's one of Norm's great talents. So. <laughs> I, I, and I, I guess for me personally, I really like the theme of parents trying to force their children into their own image, really. I mean, this is the case. They find a baby that could be in their image if they got rid of the wings. So they're trying to force it into their own image. And I, that's just a classic story that I think a lot of people can relate to. You know, the child saying, I'm not going to be the, what you imagine me to be. I'm going to be something different. And this was certainly not touched on in the story. To me, the most direct parallel would be maybe children who are born as hermaphrodites or something like that, where their parents literally are 
cutting them into a certain shape that they want their children to try to grow up into. And a lot of time those people find as adults that they cannot conform to what, to the roles that their parents picked out for them. Or the actual example that Norm gave us in, in the end notes of the circumcision. <laughs> exactly. It ties straight into that circumcision, right? I mean, even the mustache travel kind of goes along the same way. <laughs> I, I noted one line that stuck out in my head when it was her 10th birthday, and they're like, hey, we should go on a picnic. And the mother says, oh, yeah, Annabelle would like that. And I got the impression that Annabelle was, like, in the room. And it was kind of a weird, like, wait, wouldn't they say, like... It's your birthday. Would you like to go on a picnic? Like, I just feel like that's what my parents would have asked me when I was 10. But here they're just, oh, this creature, we've decided that it's going to enjoy picnics for its birthday. It was it was a little bit, like, odd, especially because, in theory, they could have, like, had other children over or something. That's clearly possible right. in this universe in of the story, so. Except there was a line in there where, of the, about the mother saying that there would never be another child. Right. Oh, I meant, like, other children, like, eating cake and ice cream with her. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you mean, like, going to Chuck E. Cheese or something? Yeah, they could have done that. Like, it, I get the impression that that would have been possible, but for some reason, that was not, I don't know. That's, a, that's interesting, because that really highlights how even when it, there was an opportunity to let Annabelle speak, this author never let her speak, ever, mm-hmm. at any point in the story. Uh, it was all from the parents' point of view, the parents' perspective, and maybe... That was part of the story too. The way that in Lolita, they oh, yeah, never they never sure. give you Lolita's perspective. It's always the perspective of um, of her kidnapper. I don't know that I, I agree with that. I, I thought Annabelle did speak. I mean, not actually saying anything. None <laughs> of the characters said anything in the story. But to go to the the butterfly mm. thing, the B is for butterfly. It's from her perspective that she's seeing her father tear the wings off the butterflies. Mm. Um, so maybe she doesn't speak that often. Yeah, she did ask questions. I think she, she did, yeah. Actually, she wanted the birds to, to get away. Yes. Oh, yeah. she did she speak, wanted, actually. Yeah. She did. She did. We both forgot but that. But she didn't, she didn't, she was always told that anytime she did speak, she was contradicted. So, I mean, it, at no point was she ever allowed to do what was, what seemed natural to her, so. All right. Oh, yeah, I, and she told her mom that, her parents, that she flew. Oh, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Okay, scratch that point. That was way off, way off base. Well, but thematically, I think yeah. it's still true. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask you guys. What did you think of the ending? Because there was a, there was this explosion of butterflies at the end, and I was kind of, I was expecting the red wings to turn into like to be fairies, but it, I, for some reason I was just like it should really be on the nose at the end here. <laughs> She's gonna fly. They're gonna see like a, a flock of or whatever collective noun is for fairies, and then that would be. But instead, it was just kind of like she was just gone into mm-hmm. the fairy realm and then there's butterflies to kind of represent that or something. I don't, I don't know. Well, it's, I think they leave it up and they don't tell us for sure that she did get her wings back. It's very strongly implied she went back with the fairies and we hope she was restored, but we're not told that. We're actually never told definitively that she is a fairy. It's, it's true. heavily <laughs> implied. It's true. But it's never actually confirmed. It just says that she is of nature. Were you ever tempted to think she was something else, like an angel? No, I wasn't ever tempted to think it was something else, but they never confirmed it, which which was kind of nice. I, I will admit that the ending seemed that it was, okay, well, I have to close this now. How do I actually wrap this up now that I've said what I wanted to say? And it was, okay, here we go. Let's just, we'll come back to the butterfly symbology and... Well, F was for fairies. I mean, the <laughs> word was, yeah, 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 the word was there. 
And, and then it oh, was yeah, immediately even misdirected. Though, but, yeah, but they mentioned angels, too. Yeah. So I kind of felt but like he had, was trying to lead you both ways. She definitely had butterfly-like wings rather than feathered wings. I think mm-hmm. that was... I don't know if it was ever said, but it was... It was just... I feel like That's they would have mentioned that if it was that different. Right. I will... I did note it, notice something. They didn't mention any particular sensitivity to iron. Um, they, they, yeah. they were, they did mention she didn't like knives, but they made that entirely about the trauma rather than I can't touch cold steel or, or cold, right. cold iron or whatever it is. Um, so I don't really know if, how close it, w- it was trying to follow the mythology, yeah. but I think fairy is pretty, I don't think we need to wonder. No, no, we, we don't need to wonder, but it was kind of nice that he didn't feel the need to confirm Mm-hmm. Um, that, no, there's really nothing else she could have been, um, but that it, it wasn't just kind of thrown in our face that even right. when they did mention fairy, it actually ended up being all about angels mm-hmm. and not fairies, yeah. even though at the end of the story, I thought that the butterflies were coming out. I was waiting for them to say that they were going to attack the parents. <laughs> I'm, I was wait. I'm cause fairy stories are all, you know, a lot of them are about retaliation and I was waiting for oh, all these butterflies burst out, they're going to retaliate against the parents for stealing Annabelle. And it didn't happen, so I, maybe that's also kind of part of the the disconnect I felt at the end of the story. I was kind of like, wait, what? So if Teresa read this, it would have an, an alternative, far more grisly ending. <laughs> well, not necessarily... Death, death by butterflies. Not necessarily grisly, but the butterflies would have been heading toward them. Yeah. It wouldn't just have been gone, it would have been coming their way. <laughs> Yeah, I, I will say this is definitely shy fairies versus, like, angry fae. I mean, there's definitely different <laughs> representations of fairies. Yes. Some of them don't have, like, queens and stuff, too. Sometimes they're just kind of weird forest creatures that are shy and float around, and that's kind of their entire existence. So I, I think it was more of the English, like, I forget what it was. It was like a turn-of-the-century, like, kind of English fairy that was, like, people believed in at the time that Mm -hmm. was a little bit more friendly and a little bit more like Bigfoot rather than part of like a angel-like hierarchy of, you know, power and and ancient wisdom and stuff like that, so. Yeah. I I did wonder about the size issue. Like, did she actually grow in human-wise over those 10 years? I I was kind of... There wasn't really an opportunity for him to address that in the story, and I don't think it necessarily needed to be, but it was just something I was was wondering throughout the story was, 10 years have passed. What what is... What size is she? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to say, one thing I like about the category of weird fiction, the way that it's been explained to me is that they generally try to avoid tropes as much as possible. And so I really appreciate a story that might be about fairies, but avoids the cold iron and the mm-hmm. and the revenge and the, and the queen, the fairy queens, all the things that you'd expect. I mean, if you can write me a vampire story that's vaguely about vampires and there's no vampire council and or they no... drink motor oil <laughs> oh yeah i remember a, a that one. <laughs> story where they where they're like it's like eating cars and yes this one that eats, eats books, books. And I, love like, that. I love that yeah that's a I, good example just to get away from the tropes because otherwise it's really hard for me not to feel like i'm reading fan fiction to be honest so that's just me but one one thing that i picked up on more this time than i had in others is um they made a big point about how the fairies uh, or excuse me, the fairy wings that they chopped off her disappeared. That they had them in a box and they disappeared. And I was wondering if maybe that was because 
somehow this had to do with her having them restored. That the fairies, maybe this was meant to imply to us a little bit more strongly that the wings were going to be restored to her in some magical way. What yeah, there there was the hint towards the end. I don't remember what uh, letter it was under, but that after she dreamed of flying, her shoulders hurt. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. From the from the wing muscles yeah. trying to fly. Um, so does, I does mean, this mean that she would be a, a sleep flyer if she <laughs> if she kept her wings? She'd be that kid that they'd be like, oh, so, she's sleep so not flying. Not somnambulant, but som. I don't know what flying is. Uh, avian. Some some avian. Some avian child. Some fleegan or flat. Arrow. Uh, Tempest fleegan. I don't know. That just sounds better. Some fleegan. Yes. How to deal with your some fleegan child? <laughs> Weights. <laughs> Wait. To keep them down. I smell a new travel cast. <laughs> so I think the uh, missing wings for me didn't have as much to do with the the dream so much, but more to do with the timing. It was very clear to me that there was a fate element in this story where she was picked up one night on presumably kind of this artificial birthday that they create. They cut away the wings, and exactly ten years later... Presumably she's older than 10 years old because she already existed when they found her. Exactly 10 years later, the wings disappear shortly before, and then she disappears on the same day. That kind of... Because, yeah, it was her 10th birthday was when she disappeared, and the birthday... Oh, I I didn't pick that up, that there was actually a time stamp on the wings disappearing. Well, it was shortly before... I I mean, it had to be shortly before because they still had her around when that happened. I, I could be wrong. I thought the time stamp was... This all happened kind of close to recently. I could, I, I could be wrong. I don't know. I don't know when that happened. It's always interesting with stories like this that don't have a lot of set time markers. How two people have different interpretations of mm-hmm. when things happen. That's that's. I actually thought it happened before the tenth, but I may have missed the time marker on that one. <laughs> hmm, hmm. But it's still interesting. Yeah, I, people... I don't know. So. But either way, receive time. It's all wibbly wobbly. It still was exactly ten years, which is Mm -hmm. a very this maybe it was supposed to happen, or you know, one of those kinds of like it it was part of a fate Mm -hmm. cycle of some sort or something like that. So, I I love Tim Pratt, and I've enjoyed a number of his stories on the Doublecast, and I think this story shows his skill. It just didn't particularly like. I don't think this would be my all-time favorite on the Doublecast. It's not. There have been so many great stories on the Drabblecast, it's easy for me to pick five more that I liked better, just because those were so super huge. So, I'm sure we'll run into some of those, for me, later on, as we keep going through the archives. Are you going to change your mind if tonight you dream of butterflies? <laughs> uh, no. No. <laughs> so, the reason we played Annabelle's Alphabet is it won the cage fight against Robert Reed. And it received the most votes. It was a tie for a long time. And I thought I might have to have a tiebreaker or call up the authors and have them actually duke it out. But sadly, that did not happen. I did request suggestions for future stories to show up. And you'll be glad to know that the two stories that are going to be in the contending next time are Code Brown by Dermot Glennon and The Worm Within by Vincent Eaton. Now, I'll tell you, The Worm Within has this warning on it, pervasive grossness. Code Brown, on the other hand, has this warning, grossness. There's no mention of pervasiveness in the grossness in Code Brown. I will say these are very early Drabblecasts that had a 
slightly different editorial composition than it currently does. <laughs> and that may, it'll, it'll be a different experience. I'll just say that. So anyways, we're going to have those two are going to be up against each other. There will be a thread on the forums where people can vote which one they'd like to hear. If you would like to suggest other stories to appear in future Drabble Classics, suggest any story up through episode 200 in the forums, and we will try to get them into future competitions. Until next time, I have no ending. I never have anything to say at the end. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Until next time, we will see you later. Okay. You'll have to work on that. <laughs> you got to come up with a catchphrase. Okay I need that. a catchphrase. It's okay to just be like, bye. <laughs>